I still think he might be the best candidate. This is a glorified ambassador role, I think. I do know why I am opting for one particular candidate. How do you actually think you can successfully win a contest against Michael D. Higgins? Welcome to The Candidate, the Journal.ie's in-depth look at who's running in the presidential campaign. I'm Sinead O'Carroll and I've sat down with each hopeful to get a closer look at who they are and what they want to do as president. I'm simply not going to start hurling uh, allegations around the place at any of the five. That's why also, by the way, I did not use the word racist in relation to another candidate. I said the remarks were appalling. This episode of The Candidate features Michael D. Higgins, obviously the current president of Ireland and thus the incumbent. I'm joined in DIT Angel Street studio by our reporter Orla Ryan, who's looked a little bit further into Michael D.'s background to tell us a bit about him. Orla. Yes, well, as Higgins is the incumbent president, people have had the last seven years to get to know him, but there still may be things that people aren't aware of or have forgotten about. Michael Daniel Higgins was born to parents Alice and John in 1941 in Limerick, making him 77 years old. And his age has, of course, been a talking point. um, It's come up quite a bit. (laughs) It has come up. Some people have said it's ageism. Other people have said it doesn't matter how old he is once he's able to do the job. But it is a talking point. Um, His father took part in the War of Independence and fought on the anti-treaty side in the Civil War. And when Higgins was five, he moved to County Clare, where he was raised by his aunt and uncle. Moving on a little bit, he attended University College Galway where he studied arts and commerce. He served as president of the Students' Union from 1964 to 65 and he also has an MA in sociology from the US. Higgins married Sabina, an actor and activist, in 1975 and they have four children. So obviously we know that he's been involved in politics for decades but we always think of him as a labour man but that's not quite the whole story. No, he actually started out as a member of Fianna Fáil while in college but then switched allegiance to the Labour Party. He unsuccessfully ran as a Labour candidate in the 1969 and 73 general elections. He was appointed to Shannad Aaron by then Taoiseach Liam Cosgrave in 1973 and was first elected as a TD for Galway West in 1981. He didn't always keep his seat though, did he? No, he didn't. As some people may remember, there were a lot of general elections in the 1980s and Higgins was re-elected in February 1982 but lost his seat the following November. He felt the outcome was partly due to the fact he had been vocal in his opposition to the Eighth Amendment being added to the Constitution. Higgins's time in politics was far from over and he returned to the Shannon as part of the National University of Ireland panel. He returned to the Dáil in 1987 and held his seat until 2011 when he ran for president for the first time. Where did his reputation come, the love of the arts and, and you know the cultural president? Where did that reputation come from? It's a reputation he's had for decades and in the 1990s Higgins was Minister for Arts, Culture and the Gaelthook. During his tenure he re-established the Irish Film Board. He's also a Gaelgore and helped set up TG Carr. That's a part of his personality and career that we're all really familiar with. But some people feel that it's overly focused on um, and he his tenure hasn't been exactly controversy free, has it? No. Well, while Higgins is hailed by some for his left leaning tendencies, they've also landed him in hot water from time to time. He was criticised in November 2016 for his tribute to Fidel Castro, the late Cuban president. In a statement at the time, Higgins said inequality and poverty are much less pronounced in Cuba than in surrounding nations. Some people felt the statement jarred a little bit as it failed to recognise many hardships faced by Cuban people, as well as Castro's reputation as a brutal dictator. 
When asked about the statement while launching his re-election bid last month, Higgins said it was written early on a Saturday morning without the help of his advisers. And he said, were he to write it again, he would probably expand the sections on human rights. There's been an awful lot of talk this campaign so far about money and a lot of that centres around his presidency. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more? Yes, recently there's been some criticism over the transparency of presidential expenses. The topic was discussed by the Public Accounts Committee in September. The Office of the President is exempt from freedom of information legislation, and while the overall annual amount spent is known, a breakdown of where the money goes is not publicly available. When questioned about an annual allowance of €317,000, Higgins said it is spent on entertainment such as tea parties and commemorative events. He said the balance of the fund, about €200,000, will be returned. And just to be clear, those tea parties are, are parties that happen in the Aurus that normal, ordinary citizens are invited they to. They are to indeed. Or he said he, he's hosted events for people like su- survivors of the Magdalene Laundries or um, successful sports teams, things like that, people coming into the Aurus for a special occasion. Great. Thanks very much, Orla. Just a note at the start of this episode, every other candidate was able to give us 30 minutes of their time, but Michael D. Higgins' team only had 15 minutes to spare. So we just got straight into it. And my first question to him was, Michael D. Higgins is the president of Ireland. He's a millionaire. He's a landlord. Would 30-year-old Michael D. Higgins recognise this person today? Well, first of all, I'm not a millionaire. And It is something that Joan Freeman said about you twice during debates. Yes, but I I think I take only responsibility for my own language, you know. And I did say in response to that that I'm hoping that the remainder of the campaign will really go on to the substantive offerings of each of the six in relation to how the next seven years would be occupied in the presidency. On the other one you asked me is very much is that (laughs) Sabine and I... uh, and three of our children were born in Fairlands Park in Galway, and we've bought a house there. We may well, in fact, actually go back there, but in the meantime, it's rented out to uh, young workers and I think some PhD people, and I have somebody make sure that it's managed properly and that they have everything they need, and they've been interviewed and said that they're very happy. Do you make sure that it's within HAP um, thresholds? One of the things that is problematic now, particularly in urban areas, is that a lot of rental accommodation isn't um, within HAP thresholds. Well, it was, born, it was bought as a future family home and literally it has been examined to make sure they have everything they need. And they've been interviewed about it and they've said it's being rented below the rate and everything and it's within walking distance of the university and the hospital and where they work. Why I brought up the the millionaire thing because I I did find it interesting that Joan Freeman has made it a a point of her campaign that she said it twice now one debate that you were there and one that you weren't Um, you've obviously taken issue that you aren't one why is that? Why do you not recognise that? Obviously we all know your salary so we can all do the maths pretty quickly People can do the maths and indeed I'm funding my campaign my campaign started from my own resources I think so far uh, drawing down my own resources I've put in, I think, about 140,000 to get the campaign. But I I don't see uh, um, the merit in this kind of discourse. In fact, insofar as, you know, we are in a a media environment, I, I think that the public... I'm just after coming back from the street and what people 
are expressing to me is that they have a good experience of the last seven years, but much more importantly, in relation to the challenges that are facing us, uh, be it in relation to the much-discussed Brexit, the lesser-discussed future of Europe, or indeed internationally, what's in the international order. But very, they are interested in... Really, I suppose it is in how, how the voice of the Irish people will be represented and which of the six of us will represent it. And I think that hasn't, in fact happened enough. I think we'd like to think that the next stage of the debate will be about where people project themselves into the next seven years and just envisage how their voice is being expressed on all of these issues. And I think it isn't only those challenges that I've mentioned, but also what I'm saying in both Irish and in English. I've said that in the last seven years, you know, I had a very definite programme. I ran three initiatives, being Young and Irish Ethics and Dunclaic, in exactly the same way. I'm announcing three for this presidency, the first I've announced already, participation uh, and transformation, and the other one, then on Nashanagasauliak, the nation and imagination, and one I will announce on Monday, which will deal with uh, shared Ireland, shared island. Yeah, so you have sounded in in most of the interviews because obviously a lot of the media commentary has been around the expenses issue and the money that is spent in the presidency and you have sounded exasperated and and you do again here. Could that have been avoided if you had just published the accounts that you say are ready and that there's nothing... um, problematic with and I think you're correct most people in the public do believe that so is that something that could have been avoided by just publishing them over the past once over the past seven years I'm not exasperated about it at all but I do realise the couple of things that are important the allowance that people are referring to is one that came into being in 1938 to Douglas de and it was to enable him to be able to put his stamp as a scholar because that was his emphasis at the time it was revised in 1998 and I have followed the procedures exactly as they were before me but I do take account of what the debate that has been going on and here it is that you really need to be able you know the in 20 it's 20 years since 1998 so you need to offer more transparency and what I've said is that I will appoint an ethics committee that will be completely independent of me and if you're going to do that here's the the choice that I had to make Uh, should I uh, make that uh, decision just in the midst of an election but remember the allowance is not to Michael D. Higgins the allowance is to the incumbent of the office that's how it is described in the basic act so if you're going to make a change that will affect every precedent into the future you should do so properly. So I've, what I've said very clearly is uh, that this will happen. Uh, at the moment there is an audit committee. All the, the expenses are already given to the Comptroller and Auditor General in terms of their final figures. But what you need is that, well, I think the public want too, is that they want ongoing audits. Yeah, so the breakdown. On, the ongoing audits are there in relation to the main expenditure of the the ORS are already up on the website. I asked for them to be put up on the website. In relation to the allowance and so on, if I'm going to make changes in the allowance, what will happen is that at the end of the period of the presidency, my predecessor at the end of 14 years made a balancing statement. I will do the same at the end of this presidency, irrespective of the outcome of the election. And then when we have done but you should do it properly you do it in a way if you're going to make an institutional change you should do it properly because why let's 
be very clear, the independence of the presidency is very, very important. Presidents have this to be able uh, to put their stamp on the presidency. Now, some people Do you think there should be more or less money for the office of presidents? Now that you've done your seven years, you know exactly what is required. And, and do you think there's enough money or should there be less or more? Well, I think what I've said is that... Uh, I haven't changed the amount. I haven't sought the amount to be changed. I haven't asked for it. But I do think that in exactly the same way as my predecessor, at the end of our two terms, at the end of that, I will in fact make a return at the end of this seven years. But you do it properly. You don't do it under uh, some form of interrogation that is uh, uh, going on. And you've had a great deal of... I think myself, uh, unhelpful uh, conjectures that are not there. I, there is nothing whatsoever. But I think the conjecture is there if there's a, a gap in transparency or a gap in knowledge. That will always be the case, no? Well, I think that... It, what you know that from your time in as TD. If someone doesn't give you the full information, you will look for the gaps. Oh, well, the point is I have. The fact is, it is as it is. I've said that we know the amount of the allowance. I have said that it is running in relation to the likely return at about the same level as my predecessors. And I've said that the innovation that I'm going to propose is to establish an independent audit committee. And I think that that is the right way to go about it because what will happen then is whoever is president will operate that procedure. I, I think too... Um, how has it been? I, I would, I've also made another innovation, and that is I'm hoping to be able to bring into existence an annual report from the Auras of all of the activities that go on. 20,000 people come through every year now. It has massively increased. In addition to that, it isn't only the people referred to garden parties and so on. There are eight of those. The Magdalens come. They were, I, that's why you have eight rather than seven last year. You have also as well as that there are individual groups with special needs who come to see me. There are Paralympics, Special Olympics. There are different sporting organisations that come through and so forth. And really, frankly, on all of this, every penny is so well spent. I have refrained from actually asking my competitors, uh, as it were, from the other aspects to say, which group wouldn't you want coming? Uh, do, do you think that we should have, in fact, not have a biscuit with a cup of coffee that we give to people to come in? And what I contrast all of that with is this. I remember walking down to the marquee with the victims of the Magdalene laundries and they talking to me about how important it was to be treated with respect and be treated like this in a, new, in, a, in a different version of Ireland. And also when I came back with one of the messages I received when I go down to Brother Kevin in the, the homeless centre who sent me a message to say thank you at the beginning of this campaign for how I had welcomed all of the groups that he dealt with and so on. And that's what it's about. And people, I do think that we should have been telling our story better. And I hope that if I'm re-elected, there will be two things happening. There will be an independent audit committee on the whole thing and I hope there will be an annual report that will tell the public what is happening in the Auras at to home and abroad. To move to something else um, during your, your last years as President, in a speech that was much lauded um, in the European Parliament back in 2013, you spoke of current trends that could see ordinary people were being treated more like consumers than citizens um, and you said in absence of considering other models, and I think you meant yes. economic, societal and political models, that we would continue um, moving into an arena of intellectual impotence. Is that something that you have felt we have grasped in Ireland in the five years since or in the EU? Have we got 
better or worse in terms of treating citizens as consumers? Well, I think that when I gave that paper in the European Parliament, it also answers something else. It was the very appropriate place to give it because it dealt with the uncritical acceptance of a single model that was derived from, if you like, fiscal realities. And, and that's <coughs> the model we were using here in terms of well, the Labour Fine Gael government. It was the model that was being suggested all over Europe. And I think that I can illustrate it for you in, in a very simple way. It's 50 years since the Paris riots, uh, since 1968. And it was about transforming the world. But there were riots during this, not riots, but protests since I became president. And they were in both Paris and Cambridge. And what they were about were the right to be taught economics in a pluralist way. In other words, the rights of postgraduate students in particular to have access to all the different theoretical models in economics. It hasn't been easy to make that kind of case I've been making for pluralism of scholarship. And the pluralism of scholarship decides, if you like, all the options that are on the table for choice. And I think really then is the next part of this is that, remember, I gave speeches not only there. The first one I gave, in fact, was in the London School of, of Economics and Politics, which was about Just the role of the public intellectual. Just to go back to the, the question there about whether you think we have improved in Ireland or in Europe about using those models to treat citizens like consumers. Do you think think, that's still happening? I think that we've drifted from a social model. I think that one of the very finest things, I think you'll find it in others of my speeches as well, the great British National Health Service, for example, was a great achievement of humanity. So were also the great other public programmes that came through which are based on, on social policy. When I taught this at university and taught it on people like Professor Titmus's work on what kind of social policy you would have. I was involved in that debate since the 1970s. And this is something, by the way, that I want to just assert because I don't do much assertion because I'm answering so many questions about different parts and I'm delighted to answer the questions. But one thing I do want to say to have had the experience of being teaching social policy, of being involved. And I really think it is important that we never devalue public service. To have stood for election at every level of Irish politics is something of which I'm very proud because on each one of those occasions we had debates about which direction the country would go. I was, for example, in the minority for many of them when I was making the feminist case, when I was making... Where I began, you know, my first bill was about the abolition of the status of illegitimacy in the Shannon in the 1970s. I think I got 11 votes out of 60. So I'm not really seeking so, to just say so for Ireland has changed. I was involved in making the changes. So for a movement, um, I was looking up one of um, probably the simplest versions of how to explain socialism was so, so from someone called Brian Barry, who says the features of the society backing together and therefore overcoming the undesirable consequences of individual actions action so a theory of citizenship and I was thinking that's actually could be a very perfect way of describing the take back the city initiative at the moment where people are seeing a housing crisis they're seeing the actions of individuals be be those corporate entities or individual landlords um, and thinking Michael D Higgins the politician must agree with the actions of that group do you? I think that I think that the housing crisis is the biggest problem that we have. 
I spoke about it many times during my time in the Dáil, many times. Were you heartened to see those sit-ins on O'Connell Street, to see vacant houses uh, being taken up to send that message? But if I might just point it, I spoke most extensively in terms of the recent times and the the long paper I gave on the in, in, in Galway to the Galway International Arts Centre about the distinction between house, between shelter, house, home, property. And these are very important distinctions. Shelter is something for which you can make a very strong case for rights. Uh, how, home is, house is one in which one has to sp- has to include the accommodations you make for providing for the rental sector. And then home is something that the security that is there in relation to housing states. And then the final one is in what you find in the United States, the idea of referring to all of this as property, showing you around the property. I dealt with that in extent so, but to answer your question, I understand that people will be responding to this housing crisis in several different ways. But maybe the debate that is most important is the debate, and this is what could happen within the realm of the exercise of, of those discussions presidencies can organise, is on the role of the state. What is the role? Should what you've been describing really, should we, can we... Can we have a debate on the role of the state? What are the, where, how far does the state go? What's the balance between the state and private provision? And I think that it is, I can't as president, I'm an incumbent president, uh, comment on individual actions, but I totally understand people responding in their different ways about their understanding of how to go forward and deal with this problem. We don't have a huge amount of time left, but I wanted to um, ask you something about the RT debates. Obviously, you're taking part in some debates, but not all debates. Um, In the first one, televised one, you didn't take part in. RT read a statement um, from you um, about... Peter Casey made claims about some of your expenses. A spokesperson then um, asked for an, a statement to be read out. Do you think that was fair? You didn't turn up to the debate, but you still had a voice there by through a spokesperson. Uh, Sean Gallagher has since described it as a bizarre decision by RT to do that on your behalf. Um, would Do you see it as fair if you were one of the other candidates? I think that what is very important to the statement was issued from my campaign office which is entirely separate from Morris and Uthron. As you know uh, my campaign office is in Lord Edward Street. It was from there that I think the correction to a, a statement that was made by Peter The fact Ke- that you hadn't turned up for the debate, should it, should you be allowed the... Uh, well you have, I might ask you a question as a broadcaster in return. Do you believe that you should have open season on untruths and allegations. But I think a statement is different to a, an untruth. So they they were issuing a statement saying this is what you said rather than this is the no, truth. No, I, I think the issue is this, is that I have cared for my own. I take responsibility and I have covered my dog's expenses, both in terms of their food, their veterinary needs and their grooming. And may I say about the absurdity, to be frank with you, the dogs are groomed about three or four times a year. It costs a couple of hundred pounds each time. And I don't know where this fantastic figure came from that it was invented. But you must remember, uh, candidate Casey has also said I arranged a break-in in relation to Orson Uchtron. He has also suggested I burned an American flag. He suggested as well as that that I objected against uh, a traveller's uh, uh, haunting Which of course site. wasn't you. Well, no, not all of what I've said is untrue. It isn't a case of it wasn't to me, but all of what of these allegations have been completely untrue. And I think... Would you not have been better off at the debate so you could say well, that this yourself? Is the, this is the whole point. 
we were facing a very clear choice. Uh, many broadcasters asked me about it. How was I going to be president and also be a candidate? So we sat down and we made an arrangement that we would, in fact, do a debate in each of the main journals, that that is in Virgin One and one in RT. We would do a number of one-to-one interviews like I'm doing now. We would do... And, and equal. So we struck a balance and we agreed with it weeks before the campaign began. We had meetings with RTE. So the issue is, and again, I'm waiting, I have to tell you, uh, I'm really waiting for an opportunity of discussing equal and together, strong, sustainable communities, sharing history, shaping the future, Ireland's voice abroad. These are the pillars of my campaign. And I've announced three initiatives about participation and transformation, uh, about imagination in the nation, and the third one will be about shared Ireland, shared Ireland. I really think, all I can say is that what the public are telling me, the public want, in fact, to hear what are the alternative policy options available from each of the six candidates. And frankly, as well as an incumbent president, which is very unusual, I am not going to get involved in denigrating the other candidates, I've said, in everything and people have made many references to my experience, indeed also to my age. The one thing that I've encountered among the public is respect. I respect the public and I very much respect all of the people that I've been in competition with in politics. And I'm just going to be consistent in that. I'm simply not going to start hurling uh, allegations around the place at any of the five. That's why also, by the way, I did not use the word racist in relation to another candidate. I said the remarks were appalling. But you see, again, you had that one again. On you, One could go on. But is it fair to the public uh, to avoid discussing the policy platforms of each of the six and just to keep this up? Or indeed, it's not your good self, but as some broadcaster said in anticipation of the election, it hasn't got down and dirty yet. It hasn't got bloody yet. As someone who's a former minister for broadcasting 25 years ago, I can tell you very clearly, the public are way ahead of that broadcasting view. Okay, thank you very much, Michael D. Higgins, and best of luck. You're very good. I'm rejoined in studio by Ronan Duffy from the Journal.ie. Ronan, what did you think of the tone of that interview with Michael D. Higgins? Well, I thought overall it was a very enjoyable listen for, for 20 minutes. And I think you kind of got, you know, a lot of the criticisms that people have had of Michael D over the last few weeks, but also, you know, a lot of the reasons why he's still the runaway leader and, you know, is most likely going to be our president for another seven years. Um, I mean, at one point, you know, you, you asked him about, you know, as he exasperated about answering questions about finance, because it, it did kind of take up some time at the beginning. And he said he wasn't exasperated at all. But, you know, kind of the tone of his voice kind of suggested he was. I mean, you can hear him kind of sighing at several points when he was answering questions. You know, at some reasons I have some sympathy for him because, you know, he's in a role where, you know, there's this kind of deference towards him and it's all about protocol. And now he's just been thrown back into, you know, the political arena again. And, you know, he's been a politician for a long time, but, you know, he's not used to this at the moment. And I think, you know, we're seeing a wider debate even with Francis Fitzgerald and that kind of thing that, you know, the rules of engagement in politics are perhaps different than, than you know, are, are they appropriate? And kind of he's having 
to get used to that again. And I think that's something you, you kind of heard him heard him adjusting to throughout the interview. Yeah, and towards the end, then obviously he didn't mind taking on Peter Casey in a way that's more familiar to him, absolutely, like the, absolutely. the TD version of him. I mean, like he said at one point, you know, I've declined from asking my fellow candidates what they would get rid of from the Oris. It's like, well, why have you declined to ask them? You know, that's the kind of thing people you know expect from from from, from candidates in a debate. And you is know, it because he's so far ahead? Well, that's a, that's that that's perhaps the reason why he you know he's president. He feels that like he doesn't need to say it because he's president, but also you know he doesn't need to say it because he knows where he is as well. Yes. In terms of the question about RTE, the statement again, that's one he sounded a little bit exasperated by. Yeah. I said, did he think it was fair? And he kind of kicked the question away a bit. Well, he he certainly kicked the question away from him. He kind of said, well, you know that this was a statement that was sent from my campaign office, and he gave the you know the address was. Camp- campaign and said it didn't come from the Oris. Okay, well, it, I mean, no one suggested it came from the Oris, but it came from the campaign, which is, is his campaign, and he has, has has responsibility for that. So, again, he, he tried to avoid that question, but, you know, he can't avoid that. You know, it, it was his campaign that released that statement. Do you think there is anything that can hurt him? Obviously, we only had 15, 20 minutes with him. Do you think anything can happen in the next four or five days that will actually hurt his campaign? Uh, well, I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, if there was something that was going to change the camp, well, like famous last words, like we talk about the front line here, everyone thought nothing was going to be a major change in the last few days. But I think at this point, it's very unlikely that anything's going to hurt his campaign. So while we, we might not have a surprise on Saturday, I think what the campaign uh, has done and, you know, the questions that he has faced has shown that over the next seven years, he is going to be under pressure to deliver, you know, a quality agenda. And, you know, he's promised certain things. I mean, he said during that interview that, you know, we perhaps should have told our stories better, you know, that we perhaps should have informed people about the work that Oris has done over the last seven years. And I think that's something that he's going to have to deliver on. So, you know, while he may feel that the questions he's had to face have been difficult, I think uh, it will show that it could improve his presidency over the next seven years, the fact that he did have to answer these questions. Yeah, and, and bringing that transparency into it. I think he didn't like a lot of the questions over the last few weeks have been about money. I described him as a millionaire because that's Joan Freeman has described him as thus. And also, as I said to him, we all know how to do the maths. Yeah. He really doesn't like the label, though. No, he certainly doesn't. I mean, he said that, you know, it's, it's up to an individual to kind of choose the labels. That's not the words he used, but that's pretty much what he was saying. But, you know, as he repeated back to you, people can do the maths and people do know, you know, that he hasn't had to spend that much money on food and, you know, a combination over the last number of years. So so just because he doesn't accept it, maybe that is something that doesn't fit too well with him. But but that's part of the problem with the presidency at the moment, or some people see it the problem with the presidency at the moment, is that it is a very privileged position. And for someone who has been a socialist for so long, perhaps that privilege doesn't sit so well with him. Yeah, well, the, I think I got two smiles out of him during the interview, and both of those when were, were talking about his socialism, one when he spoke to the European Parliament and the second when I quoted uh, the theory back yeah. to him about to take back the city. I did feel like he almost um, gave a green light to the take back the city movement, but stopped Joshua. Well, I think the way you put it to him was, you know, would you agree with our activism? And I, I would say, you know, he was very close to kind of saying yes to that kind of question. But because it's kind of such a live issue, the take back the city, it's not something that, you know, has gone away or it, it's still an issue. He probably feels that he cannot address that in the way that he would like to. But you, you, you certainly get the sense that that kind of 
activism is something that I think he has always kind of agreed with and probably still does. Obviously, we're over a weekend of a lot of news in the campaign. Um, we had the PSNI statement about uh, the use of the the jet by Michael D. Higgins. Peter Casey is obviously still in the race after yeah. those comments about the travellers. Is there anything that will stop a landslide on Saturday? Well, I think it's highly unlikely. I mean, even the PSNI statement, you know, what you couldn't describe it. It's not like it's any kind of smoking gun or anything like that. There's perhaps some kind of difference of opinion or a bit of confusion about the kind of security concerns. Well, they said, you know, there was none, but I think there's probably a bit of confusion there, but there was nothing that perhaps showed him to be incorrect in what he said. Or So that in itself... You know, I, I don't can, can't foresee anything over the next few days that's going to change it dramatically. I mean, he's been president for seven years now. You know, this campaign has been, you know, I wouldn't, you, you can't say it's been brutal, but it's probably, it hasn't pulled punches like I think people thought it might have done. So I think it's unlikely that we're going to have any kind of, you know, late surprise in, at this time in the race. Yeah, so we'll uh, be on the journal.ie with Count News from Saturday morning. And we might actually have a president returned pretty early. Thank you for listening to The Candidate with me, Sinead O'Carroll and Ronan Duffy. This episode was produced by Aoife Barry, co-produced and edited by Nikki Ryan. Thanks to the entire team at thejournal.ie and acting editor Christine Bohan. Thanks also to DIT Angel Street for the use of its recording studio. Music you've heard is by Incompetech. You can find all other episodes of The Candidate on soundcloud.com forward slash the underscore candidate. Happy voting.